1: Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? And his name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital.
2: Major, fantastic. It's the takeout.
1: This is a major achievement. With CBS News chief Washington correspondent
2: Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, I.
1: Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense, and you should know better.
2: Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes.
1: Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. However you find this show, The Takeout, we thank you. Podcast, you are our original finders, our first in line. We thank you for that. 75 radio stations around the country, we thank you for catching up with us there. CBSN, Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, however you find this show, Thank you, thank you, thank you. You know what we do here? Yes, politics, policy, a little bit of pop culture. Sometimes we're right in the flow of news, sometimes we're ahead of the news, and sometimes we stand maybe off to the side. This week we're going to be ahead of the news. And our guest this week is David Drucker. David, what is your title?
2: Senior correspondent. At where? The Washington Examiner.
1: He has written a new book called In Trump's Shadow. Now, why we're ahead of the news with this book is... Does former President Trump run for re election in 2024? If he doesn't, who might then seek the Republican nomination? And even if he does, who might try to wrest that nomination from him? So, David, first question Do you believe, based on your reporting for this book, In Trump's Shadow, it is certainty? That Donald Trump will run for re-election, or w- run for another
2: term, and run for the nomination. Well, Major, good to be here on the takeout, and I really like the way you ask that question because it allows me to give a much better answer. It is not a certainty that he that he will run a third time for a second term, right? Right, or run a third time for the White House in order to earn a second term. And it was one of the interesting part of uh, parts of my interview with the former president at Mar-a-Lago for In Trump Shadow. I didn't even have to ask him if he was going to run because he just all of a sudden says to me, well, I should back up. I was asking him what he thought of people who might want to grab the mantle of leadership of the Republican Party from him someday in the far off yes. distant future. And I was trying to be easy on him. Right. And he says to me, why does everybody think I'm not going to run? I, I mean, why do they think that? I said, well, sir, if you'd like to make news in Trump's shadow, please do. I'll hold it for publication. Well, no, no, I mean, you know, I'm not really ready to talk about that yet, I, but I think people will be very happy, which is shorthand in Trumpese for whatever I, whatever answer I give you will be the right answer. I walked away from that believing that there are definitely is a big part of him that wants to run. Mm-hmm. And in the reporting I did for In Trump's Shadow mm-hmm. and since, I found out that he tells people all the time that he wants to run and is going to run, and in fact... Before he lost his re-election bid to President Joe Biden, he was telling confidants that if I lose to this dope, and that's basically how he would refer to Joe Biden, if I lose to this dope, it would be such a travesty that I'll run again just for revenge. And there is a part of him that wants to do that, especially as the current president seems rather weak politically, and Democrats are having all sorts of problems. But I also talked to people inside Trump world that said they believe it's possible that, that Donald Trump may ultimately believe that the trappings of the ex-presidency are more appealing than the trappings of the actual presidency. Right.
1: And I've had conversations, David. This will come as no surprise
2: to you. By the way, Atlas Brew Works is our host. We
1: thank them for being our host. We've been here now once, twice now, twice now. Um, We thank them for that. Diet Coke's for us, by the way. There are those who are close to the former president who say it's certain from their vantage point that he's going to run and that he can't be stopped and he'll be the nominee. And then I've talked to people who are also close to the president, who play golf with him, who see him in less hyper-political moments, who say, no, he actually is enjoying this post-presidential life, and the specter of another loss is genuinely on his mind, and he doesn't want to even risk that. And they're equally certain he's not
2: going to run.
1: That probably Those two interpretations probably come as no surprise to you.
2: No, not at all. Look, the, the reason he will not concede defeat and and will never accept publicly that he lost it was because his entire aura politically is built around the fact that he's a winner. And look, in, in 2016, it clearly worked. And in some ways for the Republican Party, and this is part of what I, I try and communicate in In Shadow, he's a very complicated political figure as as many problems politically as he had as much as he cost his party in 2018 in those midterm elections as much as he cost himself by not winning re-election he was able to expand the republican coalition and and the republicans experienced success down ballot even in 2020 because of him but it, but but his whole aura is about winning and i guess he could for a second time say it was stolen and rigged and and i really won But it's possible that act might wear thin and and he might understand that. And, And I definitely think that is why he seems more interested in running today than, let's say, in July before Joe Biden botched the pullout from Afghanistan and his numbers cratered.
1: Right. And it was at that moment when you really saw the former president more actively and on a more routine day to day basis pouncing on everything that was perceived to be going poorly for the Biden White House. He would sort of drop a email once or twice a week before the botched Afghanistan It can only be described as that. Now he's there every single day,
2: four or five times a day, if not more. Yeah, it's almost like a Twitter feed in my email box. I, I, <laughs> Major, I have to tell you. So right around the time that this was happening, you know, obviously for the country and for our place... Very traumatic. And for our position geopolitically in the world is a very serious topic. But on a selfish... Um, on a selfish topic that means nothing to anybody and is not important, I called sources of mine and it said, he's not going to announce that he's running before my book drops, is he? <laughs> <laughs> At least let him wait for a week. <laughs> right. And, and actually what they told me was, despite everything you're hearing from people, he hasn't changed his mind about his general thinking, which is there's a really good chance he runs, but it's not for certain. But he will take his time because he can. And I've been told, and I want to get your perspective on this and any reporting you've done on this,
1: his lawyers have leaned on him heavily not to announce because that changes his orientation to super PAC, super PAC fundraising and the allocation of funds and all these other complications
2: that come with declaring yourself a candidate as opposed to not. That is 100% uh, what's going through his mind. He One of the things that he learned by running for president uh, in 2016 is that when you announce and then declaring immediately for re-election the way he did right after he was inaugurated in 2017 was that the minute you say those words out loud you have two weeks to file with the Federal Election Commission there are financial disclosures involved there are uh, financial report there are fundraising reporting requirements involved and yes you can no longer raise money for your super PAC right. uh, freely. The way you can when you're not a candidate for office or a sitting politician. By the way, I I know he you know he disparaged Jeb Bush to no end in that 2016 campaign. Still to this day would have nothing nice to say about Jeb Bush, but but he learned something from Jeb Bush. You know if you, you recall, Major Jeb Bush spent what six to nine months raising money for his Super PAC, which at the time seemed like a really big deal, hundred million dollars. And, you know, Donald Trump was thinking at the time, what's this guy waiting for? Why doesn't he just jump in? Well, one of the things he learned in retrospect was, oh, if I hang back, I have, all, I have free reign over my fundraising and political empire. you can a much
1: larger war chest. Correct. For your use or for distribution purposes.
2: And I'm really curious to see what he's going to do with this. You know, I also am on all of the emails, I guess. So I'm getting all of these fundraising emails. Oh, yes. Signed I get them by too. him, Donald Trump Jr., right. Kimberly Guilfoyle, all right. of them. He's raising a lot of money. It's not going into party coffers. It's going into his. Right. And I'm wondering if he's going to unload any of it in 2022 or if it's all for 24. So we've got a minute before our first break. So I'm
1: going to tee this up, start to answer it, then I'm going to cut you off and we're going to continue the answer on the other side of the break. How large is the
2: Trump shadow in which the Republican Party finds itself? It's a huge looming shadow but maybe not for the reasons people think automatically. I think when I say that, people think, oh, because he's going to run, and that's boxing everybody out, and that may all end up being true, but his shadow looms large for a completely different reason, and that has to do with the fact that the party now takes its cues from him at high levels when it comes to politics, when it comes to how you campaign, when it comes to the issue set. And that means that, let's imagine Trump does not run in 2024. The Republican primary for president is going to be all about Trump in 2024, the way the Republican primary for president was all about Ronald Reagan in 1988, 1992, 1996, and on and on and on.
1: That is the voice of Dave Drucker. He is the senior correspondent, the Washington Examiner, author of In Trump's Shadow. I'm Major Garrett's segment to The Takeout in just one moment. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. David Drucker is our special guest, senior correspondent, Washington Examiner, author of In Trump's Shadow. We are at Atlas Brew Works. We thank you for that. Our brew of choice at this particular taping, Diet Coke, for the record. Uh, Pizza is in route. We appreciate that as well. So, David, we were talking before the break about Trump's Shadow, and you said it affects a lot of things. As we're describing, as we're having this conversation, President Biden has just signed the infrastructure bill, and there is a mini civil war going on among Republicans who voted for it, either in the Senate and the House, and former President Trump saying they're all sellouts. He hasn't called them rhinos yet, but essentially saying you're stupid and you should have opposed this thing, even though for those members who voted for it in the Senate or the House, it was good for their state, good for their district, that no longer is something that Trump will validate. If you disagree with it, he will identify you, and then others in the party will send you hate mail, call your congressional office, tell you to be, you're going to be run out of office over something that, A, used to be bipartisan, and B, is, I think, demonstrably in the national interest, infrastructure. So the former president's shadow is seemingly everywhere.
2: Yeah, it's... I was very interested to see how his influence would play out on Capitol Hill with him out of office, and in some ways, this is where you find Trump least influential. At least if you look at Republicans in the U.S. Senate. Mm-hmm. Now, Democrats would have a different point of view on this for obvious reasons. But almost 20 Republicans voted 19. for the infrastructure yeah. bill in the U.S. Senate, and that includes Senate Majority, Senate Minority Leader, excuse me, Mitch McConnell, who, of course, President Trump now refers to as old crow. Um, they did this knowing he was against it and not caring because they had their own interests. In the House, I think you would have seen much more of a defection among House Republicans, notwithstanding the former president has a lot more influence with Republicans in the House. If Joe Biden would have just taken the win after the Senate passed this and immediately said, we're getting this done and then we're moving on to build had that. the better. House
1: vote in August yeah. before the recess. I think there could have been 30, maybe 40 House Republicans who would have voted for it, maybe even
2: more. Correct. So in many regards, the fact that you had fewer Republicans in the House voting for this was a Joe Biden failure and not a Trump win, if you will. Right.
1: Because one of the things you should try to understand if you're president is not only how do I keep my side together, but how, if possible, can I divide my opponent?
2: Correct. And look, this is not, you know, in Trump's shadow is about some larger electoral issues. But one of the things I don't think Donald Trump understood as president was how to deal with members of Congress who plan to be around here for a lot longer than you do. As a president, you're limited to four-year terms. And the first thing that President Trump, President-elect Donald Trump, talked about when he won on election night was infrastructure, a very low-key, soft-spoken speech by his standards. And he could never get his party to embrace spending all of this money, even though they ended up spending a whole bunch of other money. Uh, So... I think it just bo- it seems to bother him when other people take credit for things that he wanted to do. And I, I think that that explained all of his opposition to this infrastructure bill. The Build Back Better plan, I would expect almost every Republican in Congress to oppose that on policy grounds, and that includes former President Trump. But this infrastructure bill, it only had one problem. Trump wasn't the one signing it. Right. He wasn't the big builder,
1: as he promised he would be. And for a while, his presidency, and it became one of the running jokes in Washington. Every week was Infrastructure Week. Yep. And it was a punchline because they never did focus, they never did deliver, and it became one of the conspicuous legislative failures of the Trump presidency.
2: And Infrastructure Week finally came to a conclusion on Monday, November 15th, in the year of our Lord, 2021. (laughs) Exactly. So... For my audience, who
1: matters right now in former President Trump's political orbit? Who are the people who are closest to him? Did he retain a lot or any of his former White House staff? Who are the people who are around the former president who actually matter and will be part of a campaign should he
2: decide to do it? Well, that's a very good question. You know, he does not retain a he does not retain a campaign organization the way we would think of it, even for um, a lot of, let's say, sitting Republican senators and governors eyeing a White House bid in '24, who already have teams in place or their their team is left over. And I think it's a real open question as to who manages a 2024 Trump campaign. I will say, for my money, the most important uh, Republican strategist in Trump's orbit right now, excuse me, is Susie Wiles. She's a, a very experienced Flor- uh, Republican strategist in Florida, adept at Florida politics, which these days is a really big deal. But she is one of the ad- real savvy political adults in the room who understands. Came in how relatively
1: Trump- late in 2016 yeah. in the Florida campaign for Trump. Yep, uh, had some run-ins with Governor DeSantis.
2: Yes, survived
1: them. Yes, and that has emerged. Kind of surprisingly, considering the trajectory and all the various obstacles as a huge voice within the former president's
2: world. Well, to, to, to the Trump campaign's credit, they realized that Susie Wiles was more important in Florida than Governor DeSantis. I mean, they, Governor DeSantis was always going to be a Trump supporter. So, you know, as I discuss briefly in In Trump's Shadow and have since when I get questions on Governor DeSantis, one of his challenges in a 2024 campaign, with or without Trump, but most likely without Trump, because... There's no way he runs if Trump's in. He's got to learn how to keep a team of talented professionals around him for more than five minutes. Because when your own party is throwing darts at you in a national primary, you need a solid team. Trump is a very unusual sort of candidate. So his model doesn't work for anybody else. So the Trump campaign in in 20 realized they needed Susie Wiles in Florida. And she continues to be um, a very responsible figure in his orbit. He, she's the one that I would pay attention to the, the most, most. Even though, look, um, Jason Miller continues to advise him loosely. Um, obviously, you know, his son, Donald Trump Jr., has become, has become, and I write about this in In Trump Shadow, one of the most connected Republicans in Washington mm. with relationships across the Republican establishment, not just in the populist wing of the party. And oftentimes, when Republicans need something from Trump, that Trump may not be in a, a very giving mood to Grant. You go through Don Jr. You go through Don Jr., and he's pragmatic. He understands that maybe this is good for the party, even though my father may have some issues with it. And it's not that he'll ever Bigfoot his father or that he hoodwinks his father. But he does have the ability to go to his father and say, look. I think and be should, persuasive. I think we should consider endorsing this person uh, for this and that reason. And, and Donald Trump Jr., I think for that reason, is somebody to pay attention to in Trump's orbit. Do you think
1: he has his own ambitions separate from his father?
2: Yes, but not to run for president in 2024. He has five young children. But eventually? He needs to make money. Eventually, what I can tell you is he wants to remain to be a force in the Republican Party. He's only in his early 40s. He, of all of his siblings, really took to the politicking of politics. The rubber chicken dinner circuit, raising money... Going on the you know the campaign hunt, meaning actual hunting trips, yes. you know all of this stuff. Whether he's wearing a suit or he's wearing a you know he's in a duck blind, he loves that stuff. And Republicans like him, and he is very helpful when asked. Very helpful.
1: So uh, about a minute or so before break, another big question that you'll begin to answer. that I'm going to cut you off, and we'll continue the answer on the other side. Do we or should we? Essentially say the Republican Party is the Trump Party, or are there still vestiges of the tr- pre-Trump Republican Party that matter? Or is it distinctly
2: a Trump Party? Attitudinally, it's distinctly a Trump Party. And in fact, when I was reporting in Trump's shadow, and I was asking Republican strategists, both in the MAGA wing and in the establishment wing, what, are you, what is the most important thing you need to have as a candidate if you're going to win a Republican primary? Understanding that you can't be heterodox on issues like abortion and gun rights and things of that nature. A word Trump would never use. Correct. You have to show Republican primary voters that you're a fighter. And you've got to find a way to do it in your own unique, authentic way. Because if you ape Trump, they won't buy it. They'll think you're putting on an act. But if you don't communicate that, then, they're, then they are going to look to somebody else who, who will. And one of the things... Uh, that one of the Trump's success winning in 2016 told Republican primary voters that you don't have to be a statesman who's above the fray. You can get down in the mud and you can win. And that's something that they want.
1: That is the voice of David Drucker, his senior correspondent, Washington Examiner. I think we're up to 20 mentions of the book. We'll be at 40 or 50 by the end of this show in Trump's shadow is the name of the book. Back for segment three of the takeout in just one second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout and Adventure and Conversation and Eating. And that's what we have here pizza from Andy's Pizza, which is part of Atlas Brew Works, our host this week. David Drucker is our guest. David is a senior correspondent at the Washington Examiner, and he is the author of For those watching on CBSN and looking at all the pizza arrayed before us, In Trump's Shadow. So before the break, David, you said attitudinally the Republican Party is the Trump Party. Is there any other part of a party that
2: matters? (laughs) Well, in coalition politics, yes. And I think you can look at the election of Glenn Youngkin as governor of Virginia, the next governor of Virginia, as proof of that. One of the um, aspects of that campaign that made Youngkin successful is he was able to meld The traditional wing of the party, those suburban Republicans, soft Republicans, Republicans that weren't all that interested in Donald Trump. Or were offended by him and turned away from him. Correct. With the MAGA wing, the populist wing of the party that adores Donald Trump. And in fact, many voters in that wing will only turn out often for a Donald Trump, for him or a Trump-like figure. And yet they all turned out for Yunkin. He was able to turn a 10-plus Biden state into a 2-plus Yunkin state. And it doesn't happen without either or. But to your question, that means that the, the traditional wing of the party that we associated more with the Reagan era actually still matters because politics is about addition and coalitions. And I would say that although... President Trump made the Republican Party more hawkish on immigration, more protectionist on trade, and more skeptical on overseas military deployments. The traditional Reagan view of foreign policy and projection of U.S. power still lives in the Republican Party. And in fact, one of the areas in which Republicans in the House and Senate were willing to give Trump the Heisman, from time to time was on matters of foreign firm, policy. The not the trophy. Correct. <laughs> uh, and and they were willing to do that on matters of foreign policy more than once. Right. Right. <clears throat> and now we've seen... And, and we've also... Um, in, in terms of some of these cultural aspects of the party, um, we saw it with Glenn Youngkin where even though he didn't oppose anything in particular... He just emphasized it less. Right. And tried to keep his distance. Uh, So, you
1: mentioned earlier that former President Trump will never concede the 2020 election. And if that's all he did or didn't do, as an egotistical tick, that would be one thing. But that's not all he does. He manifestly repeats a malignant lie that the election was stolen from him and that he should still be president. You're not in any way shy about describing that as a lie, that he lost the election and, he, and that he hasn't gotten over. It doesn't make, make it any less true that he lost. Correct. How can a national party continue to exist clinging to what many of the people you name in this book who might succeed former President Trump, either in 2024 or some other time, who know better, continue to give space... And an aura of
2: reasonableness to this lie. Well, it's because so many Republican voters believe what Trump says. And particularly on what happened in twenty twenty. You know, politicians, as I I've found over the it's years It's riskier to talk them out of it and tell them the
1: truth than to just lay down and accept the lie.
2: Yeah. Well, what I've tried what I've explained about politicians over the years is they want to keep your job. Their job just like everybody else. I mean, it's not it's it literally is that simple. Now, they have many reasons for why they're making this compromise and that compromise. But the reason why more Republicans in public life have not stood up and said much like Chris Christie has, right, over the past few months and continues to say that President Trump lost I'm unhappy about that, but that's just a fact. And now we're going to look ahead. It's because they don't want to risk alienating their own voters. And their party's committed base and a broader number that generally always votes Republican. And I'm not talking down and out, disaffected, all the cliches. I'm talking educated, donors, these people believe that something shady happened in 2016, and as the old as you know, people love to say about Trump, well, he's not exactly right, but you know, he's on to something. There was, there, was unfair, there were unfair shenanigans. Now, when you talk to Republicans who are not willing to say, "Look, Trump, Trump lost, but I loved him. Hope he runs again. Whatever you might want to say," they tend to believe ultimately like this isn't a problem, because, yeah, it's just Trump. And you'd think after all this time, they'd say to this as well, it's not just Trump and it could be a problem. But look, even when I asked uh, Governor Christie in an interview I did for the Texas Tribune Festival that I replayed on the In Trump Shadow podcast. Aren't you worried that if Republicans are in the House majority in January of 2025 and Joe Biden wins re-election, or another Democrat were to win, that they will go and try and throw the election? Right. And he told me. I'm not worried about that at all. They only did it this time because it was a free vote. They know they didn't have the votes to actually make it happen. But once they're in a position of responsibility, they will do what the Constitution requires. So, okay, that's one point of view. Okay. But that, to me, David Drucker, and I've heard that
1: rationalization, I've heard that explanation before, and I've been in Washington since 1990. I've never watched one political party in our country play with constitutional fire at that level. Because Because nobody ever has. Right. Nobody ever has. And to assume that, oh, it's a free vote that's anti-constitutional just strikes me as something I've never seen before. Because it is. It is. After the insurrection, the riot, the storming of the Capitol, to still go to the floor and still vote not to certify electors when you know... The safe harbor date is passed. Everything has been certified. It is past the point of no return. All you're doing is, form, is you, can, you can raise your voice and protest, as others have before. I'm not suggesting no one's ever tried to say, I oppose the certification of these votes. Democrats did it in 2000 and 2004. And 2016. And 2016. Perfectly within the bounds. But in every case, those relevant candidates had already conceded, and the process was not going to be stopped. Correct. And no one assembled ...with the express purpose of stopping it. Correct. But Trump supporters did, and there is this effort now to sort of sanitize what happened.
2: And I think that... Sanitizing the unsanitizable, in my estimation. Correct. And I think that's why, and one of the interesting things I was able to get to in In Trump's Shadow, is the fact that even somebody as closely aligned with Donald Trump as Tom Cotton, the Arkansas senator, worked with Mitch McConnell to undermine attempts to throw the election... It's something that I cover in depth. Even uh, Vice President Mike Pence, and I know there's been different reporting on this, but my reporting is that he always found it preposterous that the Constitution had built in some sort of back door for one man or woman to decide who the next president was, and ref- not only refused to go along with it, but had his staff attorney in the vice president's office create a memo explaining the legal reasons why and the constitutional reasons why he wasn't going to go along with it, to try and create a paper trail, in a sense like a Supreme Court opinion, to tell future vice presidents it's not possible, it's already been looked into, it's unconstitutional. Right.
1: And this is the existing and foundational structure upon which I stood
2: to make this decision under a lot of pressure. Yes. And interestingly enough, and, and you know whether or not Mike Pence could be competitive in any primary with anybody is, is one question. But he has been sending signals that he wants people to hear, that he will decide whether or not to run for president irrespective of whether or not Donald Trump runs. And as people around Pence told me as I was reporting the book, he has a real interesting story to tell about how he separated himself from the president if he wants to tell it. I'm not yet sure that he wants to tell it. Right, but he's
1: gone a certain way down that road because at a recent Q&A, someone asked him from the audience, "Well, who did you look to when you made this decision?" He gave a two-word answer, "James Madison." Correct. And in fact articulating a constitutionalist response for an audience presumably of
2: constitutional protective origins, correct. And he presumably, um, presumably. But you know, he also he 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 structured his vice. David, pres- I'm going to stop you right there because I ahead. need to run to
1: the break. Okay. Uh, the clock is up against us, but you will we'll pick up with you on the other side of that. Okay. I'm Major Garrett. David Drucker is our special guest. In Trump Shadow is the book. We are at Atlas Brew Works. We thank them for that. Back for segment four. The takeout in just one second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett.
1: Welcome back. Andy's Pizza, very good. If you've been watching the outtakes during the breaks, you saw us uh, putting it down uh, in short order. Atlas Brewworks is our special host this week. David Drucker is our guest. The book, In Trump's Shadow. Those of you watching on CBSN, you see the book jacket. Um, I'm going to give you a kind of uh, college football playoff uh, All right. question. Let us assume for this college football playoff question, and it's not four teams. We've expanded it because I'm the host of this show. I get to decide how I expand it. we expanded it to eight teams. Trump doesn't run in 2024. Who are the top eight Republicans who you think would vie competitively for the nomination?
2: Oh, that's fascinating. So I know that I'm going to still make people unhappy, just like the college football playoff. Yes, exactly. Um, I'm going to start with the six that I focus on in depth and in Trump's shadow. Because all of them have something to offer, a unique sort of path the Republican Party could take, some intersecting paths, but all have been building political operations or have something different to offer. And I'm thinking mostly of Marco Rubio in that regard. Not so much political operation, but he's really spent the last five years putting meat on the bones of Trumpism when it comes to policy. And Which if it's not where he was in 2016. Not at all. And he was very plain with me when I interviewed him for the book. I've campaigned around the country and I learned things about Republican voters that I didn't know coming from South Florida. And then Trump won, and it really awakened me as to where the party was. He's one of them. Tom Cotton, we talked about him building a real solid political operation. Nikki Haley, for all of her problems with Donald Trump and all of her challenges, may have one of the bigger political operations of all of them, both a political action committee. And a political nonprofit. She's been collecting uh, emails for grassroots fundraising, like it's going out of style. Mm-hmm. Ted Cruz still has his main team around him, Texas Senator, also a really good fundraising operation. Mike Pence now has a political nonprofit. He was the sitting vice president, meaning high name ID, an ability to raise money inside the party. He, of course, has challenges. Um, then I've skipped over. Who have I, uh, Mike Pompeo. Right, right. And not because uh, it's only an out of sight, out of sight, out of mind thing when you're 50. Uh, Mike Pompeo may have the most intriguing non-campaign campaign I've seen so far.
1: As I understand, he, goes, he did this as Secretary of State and he's doing it now. He's going to lots of different places, meeting very significant Republican high-dollar folks for lunches
2: or dinners to hear them out and introduce himself. He has really uh, built a Rolodex. Of people in all sectors of the party, and people come away impressed with him, including voters. And I'll tell you why. If all you've seen of Mike Pompeo is somebody uh, in front of a podium delivering a, you know, speaking to reporters at a news conference or at President Trump's side in one of those official events, you think gruff, one-note, always looks like he's angry and wants to pummel somebody. Up. Yeah. In front of a group of voters, big group, he can hold a room, and he's engaging. Small group. He can. He's engaging. He lets out pieces of himself. He's got a lot of political skill that I wasn't aware of until I did the reporting and research for In Trump Shadow. What about two other Floridians, Ron DeSantis and uh, Rick Scott? So Ron DeSantis, especially in a non-Trump field, obviously is going to have a lot of interest, uh, not just among the party's base, but interestingly enough, among some of the party's graybeards and establishmentarians who want to win the White House in 2024 and think to themselves he's going to keep this coalition together because the Trump wing will turn out for him. He's just going to learn how to keep a team around him for more than five minutes. Rick and Scott. So Rick Scott, chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, personally wealthy, can drop a lot of money on his own race. Right. Um, as a matter of full disclosure, my wife is one of his top fundraising consultants. I have to say that, which is why I didn't. And I say this in the book, right. and I, but it's one of the reasons why he didn't Get more attention in the book because I have a really a conflict of interest in and there was no way around it. Sure, but is he somebody that is who's known... thinking about this for sure? Yes, and is he somebody, given his age and given his ego, because when you've been successful in business, made a lot of money, then run for governor of a big state and a senate and senate, do you Learned think how to you can win be close president? Races both times? Yeah, yep. yeah. So yep. that he's somebody you should keep an eye so on. So just think
1: about that for a second, folks. There are four Republicans who currently reside in Florida who are thinking about the 2024 nomination battle. Four. Yeah. Seriously, and not four dilettantes. Four serious players. And obviously, if the one biggest serious player, former President Trump, jumps in, the other three receive. But if not, there's one Floridian who makes a big
2: decision that affects three others. And those folks will jump. It feels to me like they'll jump in. Look, I know that Marco Rubio wants to run. He told me it just matters, uh, it, 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 it's a matter of whether he believes people want what he is selling. Mm-hmm. But does he want to do it? Yes. His kids are now much older, some of them grown out of the house in college. It's a much easier thing for him to do this time around. Let me throw two other names into the mix. Greg Abbott, Texas governor. Any See, chance? Oh, yeah, there's a chance. You know, the interesting chance thing... Chance he is, runs. Yes, there's right. a chance he runs for president. Look, I've talked to people in Texas who swear that he's going to run and is interested in running. Then I've talked to other people in Texas who say he doesn't really give it a second thought. Mm-hmm. As I've watched him maneuver ahead of his 2022 re-election election bid, are these the things you do yeah. to win re-election in Texas? Make sure you don't have a Republican primary challenger that's going to be annoying? Sure. But it also strikes me... Because he's sort of following the DeSantis model of governing, take on some of these big national cultural issues. Strikes me that he's looking past 2022, right. and I think in a, in a field, especially without Trump, here's somebody who's going to who's going to take a look at this and possibly get in. Right, and Beto O'Rourke has just done him a big favor
1: by running. By throwing his hat into the ring, So that's now a great rival to have if you want to
2: build a national fundraising he base He will raise as a more money, and it'll give him a foil. Right. Exactly. And, I mean, American democracy is great. Even in a year where Democrats are going to have a very difficult time, Beto O'Rourke is still excuse me, running for governor of Texas. Right. One more name for you, governor of South Dakota, Kristi Noem. She wants to do it. And every four years, there's some small state governor that we all fall in love with. You know, Jed Bartlett. Wasn't the first. Uh, we've seen Sarah Palin. We've seen yeah. Howard Dean. And I think Christy Noem, who really developed a following because of how she handled the coronavirus. Uh, Republic, Grassroots Republicans really responded to the way she handled it, which was different, which was much more hands-off, much more people should be responsible for themselves. And a lot of Republican voters like it. So I think... What I think is that she would at least early on have some legs, could raise some money. Uh, the question is whether she has the ability to expand her reach and, and have voters really see her as a commander-in-chief. But she has made every move that tells you she wants to run. So, as we uh,
1: finish up here, if you had to take a guess right now, based on your hunch and your reporting, would you say the probability former President Trump runs is Higher than 50% or lower than 50%? I'm not asking for a hard prediction, but where the needle fits right now as you look at it.
2: Well, I think the needle right now is higher rather than lower. Above 50% that he runs. For the simple fact that President Biden looks weak politically. Right. If that changes, it may, the, the, the needle may move back down. Yes, and it may move back down for other reasons as well. As well. Right, Health, legal, anything else.
1: And I, that's the voice of David Drucker. He is the senior correspondent for the Washington Examiner and author of In Trump's Shadow. David, it's been a pleasure. Our thanks to Atlas Brewworks. To our radio audience, we just say farewell. But for those in the podcast world and on CBSN, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'll see you next week. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Atlas Brew Works is our host. Andy's Pizza is what you see arrayed before us, those of you watching on CBSN. David Drucker is our guest, senior correspondent, Washington Examiner. David, this is the funny games part, a little bit more personal. Awesome. In addition to being a journalist, you also had an actual life in the private sector, did? did you not? A real life. That most people in our audience who are not journalists, and that's almost all of you, can appreciate. What was that?
2: So I helped run a family business that manufactured and distributed home furnishings products, mainly window coverings, to both small and major retailers in the United States. And so I had to make a payroll. I had to deal with government regulation. I had to deal with tax schemes and regulatory schemes that impacted. And where did you do that? Southern California, Los Angeles specifically. And how, how
1: much does that inform your reporting about either Washington or national politics?
2: Um, a, a ton. First of all, I remember when I was not a journalist and I would read or watch political reporting and think, you just don't understand anything. It also particularly gives me a window into legislation and how it's going to impact real life. Uh, very quick story, when I was a cub reporter for the... Ontario, uh, for the Inland Valley Daily Bulletin in Ontario, California, Uh, I watched Governor Gray Davis, this was before the recall, and Schwarzenegger give a speech to an insurance group, and he went on and on about workman's compensation insurance, which at the time was a big problem in California. And afterwards, I asked the governor at a news conference what he planned to do about workers' comp. Because I had experienced the problem as a business owner and somebody who ran a business. And afterwards, his press guy made a beeline for me. I'm like, oh, my God, they're going to scream at me because i like, why did I ask? And all he said was, how do you know about that? I said, I know about that because until recently I was paying for workers' comp and I know about all of the pitfalls. So these things, I think, have helped me understand the political ramifications of, of legislation, both positive and negative for Democrats and Republicans.
1: Got it. So we have three threshold questions we ask every guest on the show, David Drucker, and okay. they are as follows. Take them with whichever order you prefer. Most influential book in your life, all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies, and if you're on a long flight or a long drive and you're really going to get into some music, I mean, really, really enjoy it, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to?
2: Ooh. All right, well... Um, probably the, probably the movie that I would consider my favorite movie over the years, um, is when Harry met Sally. You know, when I saw that movie, I was either 19 or 20. I don't know. I was in, it was the formative dating years for me. Right. Right. <laughs> So to watch these two people go through a relationship in which they both spe- spoke very candidly to each other mm-hmm. about how people dating tend to think, it left a, a mark with me. Right. Always like that. Props to Nora Ephron. Um, correct. Um,
1: influential book. Or music, whichever you prefer. Well, let's go to music. Okay.
2: Okay. Um, Probably, probably country music. Mm-hmm. Um, something I discovered when I was a kid because my parents decided they discovered it, and then years later on a lot of campaign road trips, it was either talk radio or country music. And I listen to a lot of talk radio right. on the road, so I know what's going on, and I know what my you know voters are listening to. What I'm about to talk to, but. Um, you know, when you're going from Minneapolis to Des Moines or Kansas City to Topeka, then down to Wichita, country music will keep me occupied. Will that be more contemporary country or older country? Older, which I have to credit my wife, Jenny, and it's our 12-year anniversary today, so happy anniversary, honey. Um, she is from Houston, and she was raised on old country. Hank Williams, George Jones. All of that. Real old Willie Nelson. hmm and so I, I, like current, I like contemporary country, but I've been able to discover a lot of this old school stuff through her. Excellent.
1: Influential book
2: in your life? Influential book. Influential book, influential book. This one's harder. I used to read more books before I had kids. I get that. Uh, I get that. So this is, it sounds like a cop-out, but it's really not. When I was in eighth grade... Um, I had a U.S. history course taught by Mr. Jones. I can't remember his first name. He was a very good teacher. <laughs> right. And the U.S. history textbook that year, my eighth grade year, I read ahead. Mm-hmm. I, found my, I opened it up, and I had to read one chapter, and I kept going and going and until I was halfway through the book, like far ahead of what I needed. To, and that probably, for me, set me on a course where I ended up wanting to come to Washington and be a political reporter covering national politics, even though I ended up here in a circuitous way mm-hmm, right. not right away. I discovered a love of American history and an interest in American history, both the highlights and the imperfections, and I ingested it all. And then from then on, every time I could get a hold of a, of a presidential biography or a great piece of history on a period of time in American history— That was consequential. I ate it up. That is the voice of David Drucker proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that a textbook can light a
1: fire. Thank you for that answer, David. I appreciate that very much.
2: Thanks so much, Major. His
1: book is In Trump's Shadow. For those watching on CBSN, you see it there again. One more time, thanks to Atlas Brew Works and Andy's Pizza for our great and delicious arrayed pizza. We'll see you next week, folks. Thanks for watching The Takeout. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanan. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey.
0: Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered Internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go.